flexibility. It's a good thing, especially as we get older. We hope to remain somewhat flexible. But sometimes when people ask for flexibility, well, it might be that they want some some uh, leeway that maybe they shouldn't get. And they might even want to establish an alternative acquisition system. Let's talk about alternative acquisition systems. Well, for you and me, an alternative acquisition system would probably be going out and picking stuff out of trash cans or stealing. But when the government's doing it, it's probably something different. (laughs) (laughs) they're they're already doing the stealing part (laughs) that's right the the stealing's already been accomplished and and of course an alternative acquisition these days would be to actually go to a store and walk in and buy something it seems like because so much is bought online but here we're talking about something uh which is government acquisition government spending they've already this isn't acquiring the money through taxation uh, or printing press uh, uh, rolling, but it is spending, and they're talking specifically about the U.S. Space Force, which is still part of the Air Force kind of at present, but will become its own force. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to me because I'm a dove, I'm not a hawk. Um, I, I want to avoid wars at at almost all costs not all costs obviously um but i am a big fan of the space force i think that it makes sense to have a space force largely because uh communist china is not a is not a good player uh and russia is not a good player and if we are not in space then China and Russia will be in space by themselves and could have a strategic advantage that uh, that I think they might use in very, very nefarious ways. So um, I think it's critical that we be in space, and I think Trump has done something very, very good with that. But from the very beginnings of it, there has been trepidation on my part because we can't audit the Pentagon it's too big a mess financially to even conduct an audit on. There are literally trillions of dollars that, oh, oh, oh where did they go? Uh, nobody seems to know. And so this alternative acquisition system they're looking for is the ability basically to make purchases without any check from Congress. And you can imagine a situation in which Congress says, look, we don't have we need to we need to purchase these things and get them into use so quickly that we don't have time for the oversight function. We're giving you this much money. Go go do it. But that would now be the regular way that you do things. Um, And so, of course, the, the big problem is their argument is going to be, well, we need that flexibility to be able to do the best job that we can so that we don't have the hassle of having to come back and get permission again and again. But the reality is, if we don't have any accountability, we don't know what they're doing. And in so many things, it's like with this pandemic, uh, people have been warning about a pandemic. People have been in government positions in the 
the uh, CDC and elsewhere looking at how to be prepared for this. Were we prepared? No, not very much. Um, because people don't tend to get prepared uh, until it's real. And people don't tend to do things in a very accountable way and shepherd our resources if they know that we don't have any oversight, if we can't hold them accountable. So up, up in a way, I say, look, the Space Force is an ambitious project. I think that's great. But the ambition to not be accountable to the Congress, which at least theoretically is supposed to represent us, uh, and to not be accountable to the public is a non-starter, uh, Mr. Trump and administration. And that was on Monday, June 8th. And uh, we are now in the thick of This Week of Common Sense, a podcast starring you, Paul Jacob. Basically, we're covering the big stories of the week as appeared on thisiscommonsense.com or thisiscommonsense.org. Well, and now people can generally get to it both ways, but the best right. way to get to it is thisiscommonsense.org. We had a little a little problem uh, website-wise, uh, but nothing that can't be overcome and that hasn't been overcome, but go to thisiscommonsense.org. And, I, you know, when, when you announced me, for the for the uh, the audio podcast, you know, maybe some music or something, but but I just had this vision as you were saying that for the visual, we should have you know one of the the Leave It to Beaver, one of the old shows, you know, Father Knows Best, and and I'm coming down the stairs and I'm carving the turkey and, but but it'll have to wait, you know, we we have to build slowly before we get to get to that promised land. You mean the production values? We just have to learn how to use the equipment, for instance. <laughs> Maybe someday you'll buy a microphone, for instance. Uh. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm just I, I anytime anytime I worry about that, then I think about our friend who says, "Oh, it sounds it sounds fine." So exactly, it sounds fine. <laughs> I mean, there is a microphone on your webcam, so I mean, yes, we're not yes. we're not doing this magically or anything. The second piece this week is President goes postal. And there's a big question mark there, but just to cut right to the chase, the president did go postal. And in fact, the president is accused of going postal all the time. Um, but this was a story in which, thank goodness, the president went postal. Um, I uh, had gotten wind. I can't remember how this happened. We talked about it several times, Tim. Uh, you know, uh, the story about the, the postal rates that were being charged other countries, especially developing countries. And for the sake of this uh, 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 Universal Postal Union Treaty, which is 144 years old, uh, for the sake of that, since I guess 1969, China has been a developing country. Now, China is the second largest economy in the world. So it's not really a developing country, it is a developed country. But either way, I don't think developing countries ought to be able to undercut U.S. businesses. And, and so here's, here's what happened. I hear this story about that, that Chinese companies have this advantage where they can, they can basically mail something to you in, you know, uh, St. Louis, Missouri from Beijing for cheaper 
then someone could mail it to St. Louis, Missouri from Nashville, Tennessee. And that seems odd, seems very odd. And the reason that can be done is by treaty, we've agreed to do it. But it means that the post office is subsidizing the Chinese business. So one, the taxpayers or you know the customers of the postal service are going to ha- end up having to pick up those costs to subsidize the Chinese companies. But it also, by subsidizing the Chinese companies, they can produce things cheaper and sell them at a better price, therefore knocking out U.S. companies. So we are unemploying our people so that we can give this subsidy to, or we're giving the subsidy to China so that we can unemploy our people. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So I, I'm, I'm investigating this. I come up with a Vox story. And uh, for those, we, we, I go to Vox uh, quite a bit uh, just because they're kind of a reliable left-wing, uh, establishment left-wing source. And Are they reliably and- left-wing or reliable and left-wing? Reliably left wing. Um, they're well and and reliable in a sense because what they did here they do reliably often. Um, the story is all about well, quote, President Donald Trump is taking another swipe at China by ripping up an international treaty that's more than a century old. What a what a jerk! What a what a vicious, terrible, as we said in the thing, we kind of tried, but uh, a bull in a china shop. I mean, what kind of president do we have who is causing all this trouble, trying to throw out some international agreement that's been around for over a century and is working fine, presumably, right? Well, not so much because as you read down to about the fourth or fifth paragraph you find out that he's got a reason to be upset. You find out that we're subsidizing Chinese companies so that they can knock our companies out and we lose business and jobs. And, and, he, and, and the author, uh, it's actually a she, uh, uh, Jen Kirby, points out that going all the way back to Ronald Reagan, presidents have complained about this. But of course, that's all they did was complain. They didn't do anything about it. And so this has been going on and on and on. Well, finally, Trump complained, but he didn't just complain. He said, I'm out of here. We're leaving the treaty if it doesn't get fixed. And you know what? Everybody moaned and complained and, oh, he's so brash and blah, 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 blah. But at the end, they made a deal. And so we're not we're going to set our own rates. We're not going to subsidize China anymore. We're not going to subsidize China and destroy U.S. businesses in an unfair way anymore. And so it was it was interesting that even later in the piece, after acknowledging that President Trump had a a, a really good cause here, it was said as if it's all really just part of his effort to, un, you know, to claim that China has unfair trade practices. But of course, <laughs> this is an obvious 
unfair trade practice, except oop, it was an obvious unfair trade practice. It is not anymore. And to me, um, this is this sort of tough businessman attitude. We're not going to get screwed. We're not going to pay twice as much as we should for something. We're not subsidizing other people to get rich on our behalf. We're not playing games. We're going to sweat the small stuff because that's how you make your margin. You know, you'll hear people in philosophy say don't sweat the small stuff, but you won't hear too many businessmen say don't sweat the small stuff because if they don't sweat the small stuff at the end of the year, they don't have any profit. And that is President Trump's strong suit. And if I were with the Trump campaign, I would be telling this story everywhere, everywhere. Um, and it, it also is, I think, um, just a really important story in that going back to Ronald Reagan, who's one of the most popular presidents in my lifetime, but going all the way back, None of them did anything about it. That's the way Washington works. They kick the can down the road. And part of the reason they kick the can down the road is because if you don't kick the can down the road, down the road, then you're a brash, cad, arrogant, bully, no good, rotten Donald Trump. And it, 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 this is a story, I think, that really validates the, the folks, and I know a lot of them who don't particularly like Trump's personality, don't agree with him on all the issues, don't agree with him on a, a decent number of issues, but believe he's the only guy that will hold Washington to account and that will really fight for America in ways we did a, we did a commentary a week ago talking about how he had stood up to China in ways that people in Taiwan and Hong Kong were recognizing, hey, this guy's different. He's not just rolling over for China. So, uh, you know, this, this is a, it's a small little thing, <clears throat> unless you happen to be in the business of uh, shipping, uh, you know, small weight packages to different people in the U.S. A lot of it is kind of the, the trinkets, the, you know, the, the different kind of bling that people send around that uh, maybe is not of tremendous value, but some people build companies and uh, livelihoods and families on stuff like that. And uh, for them, this is probably pretty important. I'm wearing a hat from China. I got it on wish.com. And uh, that's what they do is that they ship really cheap stuff from China and it comes in a package somewhere between two weeks and two months uh, to get to me. But, uh, you know, if, if it costs five ninety nine or four ninety nine or whatever, I mean, sometimes it's just like one ninety nine. I mean, it's almost no money whatsoever. So it's been a pleasure. But I think that maybe I'll, I'll be able to get stuff from the United States, too, I'm sure, over time. Yes. And, and the truth is, here is a case in which the cost of some of those goods is going to go up because the post office is not subsidizing them anymore. And of course, I don't want prices to go up. I want them to go down. It'd be easier to buy stuff, but not through subsidy. We have to end these subsidies. And especially when you're subsidizing what I see as the most dangerous government in the entire world at your own expense. 
And and the, the bigger issue, just to say it one more time, <laughs> to beat this dead horse, is that it went on for so long. And I'm convinced if Trump hadn't become president, now there's some things that maybe he hasn't done so well that maybe somebody else would have done better. But in this particular case, if it would have been Hillary Clinton elected, I'm convinced there'd be nothing that had been done would would have been done about this subsidy of China. It was because it's the sort of thing that Trump will fight, both as a businessman and because I think he's very sensitive to uh, the situation with China. Every one of your columns has an image made for you, uh, especially for you by James Gill. And on Wednesday, which was about the wrong field for you, which is an interesting little piece, I love the the uh, the image. It's a toilet roll, it's a toilet yeah. tissue roll, <laughs> with the New York Times inscribed on it, and you know that could go for a lot of subjects. But you were on some specific target on that one. Let me just uh, uh, applaud James Gill because I think he does tremendous graphics uh, for us, and every day we have an original graphic with Monday through Friday with the with the, each commentary. And this one was really good. Uh, This is about the New York Times, arguably the paper of record. You can argue whether the Washington Post is the paper of record in the United States. It's the capital city or or the New York Times, which has kind of been the, you know, the the biggest paper uh, for a long time and, and is often seen as the paper of record. Both of them are in the toilet, I think, in terms of their journalistic standards and, um, you know, we, we let off with a, a quote from Michael Tracy, who's a, uh, a roving journalist, is how he's described. Uh, but he basically just said, if you're an emotionally unstable baby uh, who regards disagreement as violence, then uh, journalism is probably the wrong field for you. But I pointed out that Maybe not so much, because if your goal is to stop real journalism so that you can create your propaganda narrative, then you want to take those positions and push your propaganda narrative and not allow real journalists to get at the news and present it to the to your customers. And that seems to be exactly what has happened with The New York Times and The Washington Post. Um, this idea that they cannot stomach an op-ed, an op-ed that, frankly, I disagreed with the main thrust. Uh, well, it depends on what you see as the main thrust. He really had two. Uh, this is Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, my home state, uh, years ago, where I grew up, uh, who did an op-ed in The New York Times, basically saying we cannot allow rioting and violence to be the order of the day, to be the new normal. We need to shut that down. And if we need to call out the troops and basically invoke the Insurrection Act, uh, the president has the power to call out the troops to quell an insurrection. And um, I think that we do have to quell uh, riots and looting and bad behavior. I don't think by any stretch, that it's time to be calling out the the military. And and I think we want to de-escalate, not escalate. I don't think this reaches insurrection levels, 
Um, it's serious. And, and I think, uh, I think it's interesting that while there's been some violence associated with it, it has tremendous support. One of the sad things about this current situation is the country's largely united behind the idea that this was beyond the pale for this policeman to do what he did and to kill this individual. And yet that's almost gotten lost in, in the fact that we're, you know, disagreeing about stuff. And it, there is a move, I think, uh, more than usual to look at real things that can be done as opposed to just having a, a conversation about race or, or so on. But, uh, but I think, um, I think it's interesting to see that in all of these conversations, we aren't having the same sorts of conversations as we used to have. And we don't have the same commitment from major institutions in the media to have those conversations and for them to be full-throated. You could have printed Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times and printed all kinds of responses to it. There could have been letters for weeks if that's what the people in New York and elsewhere who read the paper uh, you know, had written letters to the editor saying, oh, this is outrageous. There's all kinds of ways to get that out. Instead, you have internally at the New York Times political views, not journalistic views in my mind, totally political views that say we do not want to ever print that side. And it tells you that the paper of record, a paper that has stories, almost every newspaper outside of New York and Washington in this country is reprinting New York Times stories. So the reach of the New York Times is just astronomical. And yet we now know we are not going to get the news from the New York Times. They won't even allow different opinions in the editorial opinion section. So it's, it's a very, very sad day. And the New York Times has every right to be a rotten rag of a newspaper that tries to stomp on and dampen public discussion instead of elevate it and create a robust debate going. They have every right to be a rotten newspaper instead of a great one. But it's still sad. Now, you say that we're not up to insurrection levels yet. Are you aware of what's going on in Capitol Hill in Seattle? Well, yeah, there is a, a, a mini insurrection there. I'm, I'm not sure how uh, how serious that has been yet, but there there are these six blocks, as I understand, that, uh, that are being held. Um, and again, my first reaction would be, as if I were in Seattle or if I had any role in this, would be to try to de-escalate. Um, I'm not. I'm not worried that the you know that these six blocks are somehow going to take over the rest of the country, or the rest of Seattle. Although Seattle, Seattle is more questionable, uh, just because they're out there. Uh, they're out there to be taken. But um, but I do think you have to respond at some point. And someone had an interesting thing, and I don't remember where I saw it now, but there was an interesting thing where they were comparing the way people looked at uh, the, I want to say Bundy's 
the the folks who in Nevada. Yeah, Clive and Bundy and his clan. Yes, yes. Uh, they how they had viewed their taking, you know, occupying something as a a violent thing to do, and how they had not looked at these six blocks in Seattle as a violent taking or other things like that uh, that had been done as a violent uh, taking. But, you know, we can't spend all of our time policing the media. The media, as we just got through talking about, um, is, you know, they've got their own agenda. And so we have to start recognizing uh, their agenda. I think in terms of Seattle and these six blocks, you have to protect people. We have to. We did something back in 2016 when they we had the uh, Trump had the rally in San Jose. We did a column at Town Hall, uh, and we did stuff at, at Common Sense as well, shorter pieces about it. The police basically did not protect the people who went to that rally. If people uh, may remember the the uh, blonde woman. Uh, who was egged by a mob of men uh, outside a hotel. And it was like uh, you were thinking, get her inside the hotel. But it was a mob of screaming men throwing eggs and smashing them on her head and body and so on. Um, that just struck me as something that people should never do. Just should never. There's only, there's nothing, almost nothing she could have possibly done short of threatening nuclear annihilation that would cause someone to re- respond in that way. Um, and there were all kinds of scenes that you could see if you went, I'm sure they're still on YouTube, uh, of older couples uh, being pushed around, hats knocked off their heads, stuff like that. The police, I know that the Supreme Court says they have no responsibility to protect us. The Supreme Court's wrong. They have a duty as police to protect people. That's their job. And so they have to, we have to retake those six blocks. Now, we don't have to do it stupidly. Just like in, in other situations, um, I think the uh, Waco, you know, when Janet Reno was, and the ATF went into Waco, it was a stupid move. But ultimately, once you've gone in and there's, you know, you have to you have to stay. I think it was stupid to have moved in the way they did. Sometimes you got to wait. It's possible that depending and I don't know enough about these six blocks in Seattle, but it's sometimes you have to wait a long time. Sometimes you want to deescalate and not cost lives. My guess is that the situation in Seattle could be dealt with any evening by a late hour when you just move in with force and you take the streets back and say, okay, no, you're not the legitimate authority. But, but I, I don't think that, um, I, I do think it's worth deescalating to some extent in the, in the extent that so much of this, I think, is designed to get us agitated and angry and divided. And I think maybe we should look at it a little bit more like, you know, our kids just did something stupid. And so let's let's try to make this a learning uh, a learning event. Well, Jay Inslee is the governor of Washington State. 
and he well, spoke. That's a learning event right there. I know. See that, and you can you can see where I'm going with this. His response, let's just say, de-escalate. He has. I don't even know if he raised an eyebrow. He just sort of snickered about the whole thing. It's it's really bad. Well, and and the mayor was it the mayor or was it a city? I believe it was the mayor of Seattle, who who basically embraced it as this will be the summer of love in Seattle. Um, and and the truth is. If what these people are doing in the six blocks is to just spread love around, then I don't think you'd even really say they took over the six blocks because they would love anybody who came in. If any policeman came in, they would be loved as well. Um, so but but that's kind of the attitude. I know uh, my friend Tim Iman uh, went down there and talked to uh, the folks down there and he got a pretty rough reception. But he's a big boy. He's a tough guy. And, uh, you know, and he's he's very good at staying positive and keeping a smile on his face. And, uh, you know, he he recognized it and went and talked to those folks, um, a good number of them. And, and has a uh, maybe we'll see if we can link to his uh, uh, he did a little video afterwards just saying, you know, what his his takeaways were. Um but one of his big takeaways was that he was there talking to these people. Inslee is basically pretending they don't exist. And um, no, I think Inslee has um, his presidential uh, campaign didn't catch fire for a reason. And he is so far to the left of, you know, Washington state's considered a blue state. But I think Inslee is um he he may fit Seattle. I don't think he fits much of the rest of the state. Well, that's for sure. Uh, he's roundly hated outside of King County, as far as I can tell, um, for the most part. Of course, Democrats love him because he's a Democrat, you know. So that's it's we live in a very partisan time, and it's, that colors everything. And I don't I don't see how I don't see how that the uh, Capitol Hill situation is good. My opinion is colored by the fact that in 1999 I was walking out of the. Harvard Exit Theater in Capitol Hill in Seattle and stumbled upon a an unlicensed parade, a parade that happened that began the WTO uh, protests, which turned into mass riots. And um, until that time, I may not have ever really thought very much about protests and riots, but at that point, I mean, I talked to the people, I read their pamphlets that they were handing out. I saw their anti-capitalist, uh, you know, skull imagery everywhere. It was just all, it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And it was the funniest thing. I, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to come out like an angry person because I was, just, I was just rolling in the aisles at, the, at how dumb the WTO campaign was. I just thought it was stupid, beyond, beyond stupid. It was dumb, dumb, hilarious. But it became violent. And I think it became violent for a reason because these protests, these protesters held a parade and didn't get a permit and they shut down Capitol Hill for an afternoon. And then they shut down the city of Seattle for three or four days. I don't remember how long it was in, in the end. And that's the, one of my objections to all this is that the method on, of protest on the left is to basically commandeer. They're basically conscripting public resources. They also know that violence gets coverage and so if something burns if something's looted if something's destroyed if someone's hurt even it gets coverage 
And sadly, I think that 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 causes people on both the right and the left to be more apt to do something violent because otherwise they may not get coverage and they will get coverage if they do. The other terrible thing, the good, well, it's, it's half good and half bad. It's called hypocritical. The good part of the media's hypocrisy is that they come down against right-wing violence as well they should. The bad part is they don't seem to come down in the same way against left-wing violence. And the, the truth is you can look at, you know, there have been peaceful protests that nothing has happened afterwards. There have been violent protests that nothing has happened, nothing has really changed afterwards. And I think a lot of times there's this idea that the violence will create change. Sometimes it does. But the key is to have the ideas of how you want to change. And it's still, even if there's violence that gets notice, you still have to have something to say. You have to be for something. And we did a piece on Thursday, Police Incentives Matter, Um and talking about a piece that Jason Brennan did. And that last time we talked about Jason Brennan, we were saying bad things about him, or at least about his position on democracy, because he was he's not too uh, he's not too fond of democracy, uh, not nearly as fond as he should be. And um, and but we won't belabor that here. He was talking about the incentives and says, look, the incentives are terrible. He points out that, that uh, in Germany, for every bullet that they f a policeman is fired in Germany, there are 10 people in America killed by police. It's just, you know, and, and he goes on and on about different things. And, and the key to, I think, the points he's making is that this is policy. We are pursuing policies that create incentives for more violence and problems. And he makes the point that if we could magically wave a wand and solve the problem of racism, which is a problem and does need to be worked on, but if we could solve it, it wouldn't change all these dynamics. And one of the things he pointed out was the, the Military Cooperation with Law Enforcement Act, which libertarians and other wise people who are looking at criminal justice have been livid about for a long time, where basically we are incentivizing putting all this military equipment into the hands of local police. We are training local police in military tactics. And so maybe we shouldn't be so shocked that when Ferguson happens, the police are all out there and they look like, like military. Um, and and you almost like I hate the idea of the, the somehow the troops being called out into the streets. But if we start treating our police as those troops and, I, and, and I've been very concerned with the amount of tear gas being used against demonstrators, that's not something you, you know, I mean, maybe the Chinese in Hong Kong just shoot that stuff whenever they kind of get tired of seeing demonstrators on the street. Let's not do that in America. And we're firing rubber bullets. Our police are firing rubber bullets on folks. We we have to police in different ways. But the whole attitude 
has been to turn the police into super cops and super warriors. And it's been a huge mistake. The other thing that Brennan points out that I think is is probably the most important aspect of this whole problem is that the drug war is fueling this police problem. It's fueling it because now the police can search anyone anywhere because, oh, there's all this. And this is true about the entire vice area. Uh, prostitution should be legalized because it would be safer for the prostitutes. It'd be safer for everybody involved and it would get organized crime out. Drugs should be legalized. And by that, I mean no crime and not that we create some big government bureaucracy, but just that we stop criminalizing them. It would be easier to treat people who have drug problems and it would crush organized crime. And it would stop the police from having to police everybody about uh, uh, and, and enforce laws that literally so many people are breaking, they couldn't possibly enforce them, except in poor communities where people don't lower, uh, lawyer up as well. And, um, and, you know, he also points out that in many places we directly elect prosecutors and I'm not so sure that prosecutors behave very well, even when they're not directly elected, um, because the problem he points out is prosecutors want to have a big win record. And it is the duty, the critical duty of a prosecutor to not prosecute anyone that he or she doesn't believe is guilty. They are not supposed to pad their win-loss record. They are supposed to drop cases if they don't believe the person's guilty. And they are supposed to behave in a way that they are not a crusader who's constantly bad-mouthing whoever they're prosecuting because that person is innocent until proven guilty. It's that the whole, our criminal justice system is so broken throughout um, but it's, it, there are ways to fix it. We've talked a lot about qualified immunity in the, in the last couple of weeks, um, getting rid of civil asset forfeiture. So we don't have police who get used to stealing our stuff and kind of cross the line to become crooks. Um, we have corrupted our police forces and this isn't about, I like the police. I don't like the police. A lot of police out there, a lot of different folks. We have to have incentives that point the right direction. And that means, I think, that we're going to have to do a lot of this by initiatives at the local, at the state level. It may not happen at the federal level where the R's and the D's can't get together. Um, it could. You know, uh, Trump had one criminal justice reform bill that the Democrats in the House and, and Republicans in the Senate went along with. So, you know, it's, it's possible it could happen, but that's those are the changes we need if we think we're going to have a revolution uh, that and everything will change. And I think this is going to be incremental. It doesn't have to be slow, but it's going to be incremental and it's not going to happen because there's a revolution and then it happens overnight. It's going to happen because a lot of people in their community, in their state did it themselves. And it sounds less crazy than 
defund the police, uh, which is the current rally and cry in Minnesota and elsewhere. Yes, yes. And on Capitol Hill, the the thugs, I mean, the, the Antifa people, or whoever they are, uh, BLM, uh, they said, "Oh, we're the police now." That's what they said, and they're carrying big guns, just as big a guns as as the people who were protesting the uh, the and the lockdowns a few weeks ago that were considered by the media as such a horrible, horrible show of violence, in which no violence happened. There's actual violence on the streets of Seattle. I think you're going to find out. It'd be interesting to see what what ends up happening there, but but it it does to me we have to something has to change policy wise legal wise the change cannot be we want rethinking inside somebody's head we've got to change the laws and the policies and and there is a majority a huge majority to do that it has really been the political process not being at all representative that has held back criminal justice reform because you poll on a whole range of criminal justice issues and conservative, liberal, moderate people all across the board are for them. So there there's tremendous opportunities to make change at criminal justice reform, but not if somebody else is doing it. The public has to get engaged. Well, that's almost certainly true. And it's, of course, it's once again a state and local issue largely. But we could go on the national level, I mean, session of repeal. Uh, I mean, what we have is a whole bunch of laws for the last 60 years about the drug war and related things that could go. I mean, and, and in fact, much of what Biden did regarding uh, uh, criminal justice system probably could be stricken with, uh, with, with no ill effect. Right. Well, isn't it funny that with this being such a big issue, the Democratic nominee is horrible on it, is the lead sponsor of the crime bill that took us the wrong direction. And not that everything in it was terrible, but it was a it was a it was a bad piece of legislation. It was badly put together. And by badly, I mean, it was politically put together so that Joe Biden could show what a tough-on-crime Democrat he was. When you write bills for your benefit and not for the public's benefit, it's amazing how often those bills become law and you get the benefit, but the law doesn't work for everybody else. Because, of course, that was never, the, that was never really the intention. And I'm convinced if, if you if you go back, Reason has a good uh, little video. It's probably two or three, four minutes, but showing all kinds of different statements that Biden made back in the in the 80s when he, he passed the crime bill uh, that just make you cringe. Um, he's a he's a politician who has been in Washington for over four decades. All the problems that we have have Joe Biden's name written somewhere in small print on him. Well, he is the cringe candidate. That almost defines his candidacy, which is, you know, I think that one of the reasons we have these riots and we have everything that we've been doing in the last half a year is largely because Democrats can't handle the fact that they have a terrible candidate and they have nothing to offer anybody. Well, they do have a terrible candidate. I don't know how much that has to do with the coronavirus or or with these protests, but I do think, I do think these protests have been bigger because people 
were held back in, you know, they're, they're, they wanted to get out and do something. And of course it's been, it's been somewhat funny that the media has hardly noticed that there's all these people standing in very close proximity. If it would have been anti-abortion uh, rallies or something, I'm sure we would have all been informed how dangerous those rallies were. Um, but it's, it, it does seem to me this, I had a friend earlier this year, January say, you know, we were kind of plotting out how we thought the, this election year would go. And he said, you know, probably though something's going to happen that nobody foresaw that will change at all. And, you know, that could happen two or three more times before we get to election day. Well, it's hard to keep score. And that's my really clever way of getting to Friday's piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. Well, Friday's piece was a story the week before soccer star Howell Haidong, who is the all-time leading soccer scorer in Chinese history for the national team and also as a uh, professional. And he came out and basically said the Chinese Communist Party is a totalitarian organization that has committed horrible atrocities and you know basically fired both barrels at them his wife uh who was a world champion badminton player uh and won an olympic uh bronze medal uh for china uh both of them were interviewed and and uh just let the chinese government have it uh they are connected uh to a Chinese billionaire who's on the outs with the, uh, uh, very much on the outs with the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, who has actually hired Steve Bannon to help him publicize how bad China is. And, and, uh, and they had a 18 point statement about how China could become a, a new federal republic instead of a totalitarian uh, communist state. So all of that's wonderful. The interesting thing, though, is that in reading the story, I'd, I'd seen the story on my phone. I, I can't remember whose story it was, but then saw it in the newspaper in the Washington Post. And in the Post, they said that this stunned the country. And that just caught my, my mind for a second because I thought, well, it probably sort of stunned the, <laughs> the Communist Party and all their many censors. But much of the country probably is unaware of it. Now, it, it's interesting. This did, even though he, the, the, the statement that um, the soccer star made was on YouTube and China bans YouTube. So Chinese folks were not seeing it on YouTube. But it started to get into uh, their social media. Uh, his account was, you know, taken down. But there were people talking about what he had said, he, you know, also, uh, he had some very colorful statements about how they should be kicked out of humanity, um, as if they are, are part of humanity even. Um, and all of a sudden, a big sports website in China comes out and denounces him as having said outrageous, terrible things. And then, like an hour later, they take away his name. No longer is it Hao Haidong, it's just H. And then two hours, three hours later, he's gone, poof, 
He's not on the internet in China at all. He never existed. His wife never existed. This event, this incident never existed. And then just to show that they are Orwellian, but with a little meanness, his son just had his debut for a Serbian uh, soccer team and scored a goal to tie up the game in the late, you know, the closing minutes of the contest. And so it was a tremendous debut uh, for his son on the Serbian team. But then his son was let go because in Beijing, they pressured the Serbian team that if they didn't let him go, well, then China would retaliate. This is... Um, it's, it just, I thought was, a, it was, it was something I thought about doing something on and then the story got a little bit old and then I thought, no, this is important for people just to read through and see how silly, dystopianly silly, but how completely ridiculous the largest population country in the world the second and arguably soon to be the largest economy in the world is a country that actively silences and hides the truth from its people in a way that we have read about in dystopian novels like Orwell's 1984, which sets us up to talk about that here in a second, and which we know leads to very bad events, previous societies that has slaughtered the truth, that have slaughtered the truth in this way, have gone on to kill millions and millions of people. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party is over 100 million people killed already. So it's just important that we recognize who we are dealing with. And that for now, there are 1.4 billion Chinese people who have to live in this dystopian nightmare. For now, hopefully that changes and hopefully it doesn't extend any deeper into Hong Kong, which it likely will, and doesn't extend across the Taiwan Strait to Taiwan or across the border where they're rattling sabers with India or who knows what. Uh, so it's, uh, we, we continue to talk, uh, not every week, but almost every week we, we have something happening with China, with Hong Kong, uh, with Taiwan. And, uh, I wanted to do that to keep it on people's minds, obviously, but I've had no trouble doing that because, it's not just a matter of keeping it on people's minds. This is this is the news. This is what what is going on. The deterioration of our relationship, which I think is largely following the realization of how bad China is and how much um, I think Trump sometimes can uh, overstate how badly we've been taken advantage of. When it comes to China, I don't think I don't think it's hyperbole. I think he's doggone accurate about how much we have allowed them to take advantage of us and in ways that unfortunately because they are the butchers of Beijing 
have terrible repercussions. So we will we will keep talking about about totalitarian China and hoping that the free world continues to wake up um, because folks are uh, uh, Japan, United States, Australia, uh, Europe, I think, is a little slow. But even Europe came out this week uh, with a report that said very clearly that there was a active and aggressive Chinese disinformation campaign that was harmful to the world regarding the uh, coronavirus pandemic. So uh, the free world is 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 getting more woke when it comes to the uh, totalitarians in China. It's kind of nice that this week begins with George Orwell's uh, 1984 71st anniversary. I believe that's right. To me personally, that has been the most, uh, I'm kind of into dystopian uh, literature. None better than that, though, because I think it presented a world that was believable because it was really looking back at, at totalitarianism in the 30s and 40s that was defeated and realizing it wasn't really defeated. Um, but I think, I think the fact that that book ended with Winston Smith, the protagonist, loving Big Brother because Big Brother had kindly stopped torturing him, um, that was a different message than if it all had been fixed in the end by, you know, superstar Americans with their, you know, M1 rifles or whatever. Uh, and and so, I don't know, 1984 has always been uh, something out there to fight against. And I, I look at, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to kind of look at what, what you're trying to do. I'm trying to make the world as free a place as I can. But I have a special fear of totalitarianism. The, the fact that in, in communist China, they continue to tell people how many children they can have. Not one, now you can have two. But they tell them so that you're not free to pro procreate without the, the government telling you. To me, that's just terrifying. And I have often joked with uh, friends that we live in America the freest totalitarian country in the history of the world. And what I mean by that is that we have a, a pretty nice level of relative freedom, but that the attitude of our government from the NSA spying on everybody illegally um, and the attitude of so many people in government that every single problem anyone anywhere has must be solved by the federal Congress and some bureaucracy or some agency in, in Washington. It's a totalitarian attitude about government. And that I find just terribly frightening. I don't expect uh, in my short time left on this earth that I'm going to see a shining libertarian city on a hill. I don't think that's the way the world works. So, uh, that's not my goal, but my goal is to put a few more nails in the coffin of totalitarianism, which I see making a resurgence in China and which I see latent in the political attitudes of this country. And that's really scary. 
Every day we have a, a Today in Freedom feature and a thought for the day. And they're usually somehow related to the fight against totalitarianism or the fight for freedom or somehow related. And this Monday's was on the anniversary of uh, 1984. On Wednesday, we had a quote from 1984, which I think is an excellent quote. It's one of the double-thick passages in the book. And I think that there's a lot of double-thick going on, especially with the media pushing one narrative so strongly. I'd also argue that the CIA has something to do with it. I mean, disinformation was a term. They're, they're, they have a disinformation campaign. They've been having it for a long time. It's actually there's, for strategic reasons that CIA has been engaging in this. Uh, the, you know, the fight against the Soviet Union demanded that they engage in corrupting public information, uh, which is a very weird thing when you think about it. Demanded in their mind that they corrupt public information. Well, I'm well, not so sure. I'm I'm with them, uh, but but no, it, you know it is. That's I think where Orwell was so prescient um, is how that would play out, and um, we do see now that we have we we have these narratives and things that don't fit that narrative can go down the memory hole. Um, I suspect if the media were adamantly pro-Trump, that every American would know this postal story about how China was getting the unfair rates and Trump stopped it. But hardly anyone's going to know that because the major media folks aren't going to cover it. Uh, and you have and you have the media, uh, and it's not just the liberal media. Fox pretty much does the same thing in reverse. But you have them looking at, uh, you know, situation where someone takes some government property or private property and they're hoodlums and bad guys. And then someone else does it and they agree this time with the political views of the folks who did it. And they're not bad guys at all. They're liberators and freedom fighters. And and uh, and, you know, there are times where you can justify something for one group that you might not for another, but you have to do it in some honest way. For instance, people have pointed out uh, Hong Kong. Oh, well, they've they've vandalized things and they've done different things. They've set different things on fire. Now, there has not been looting in Hong Kong. Uh, There has been a, a decent amount of respect, I think, for private property, but you also have a situation there where unlike the United States, in which they're able to get permits and come out and peacefully protest, you had the government constantly blocking them from having peaceful protests. And, of course, as we pointed out in a commentary, I think it was last week, the biggest difference is that we can do things about it other than protest, other than simply, you know, the, one of the sad things, and, it's, and the bravery of the folks in Hong Kong is inspiring, But part of the reason they're so brave is they're doing it in the face of such overwhelming odds against them. And so, you know, it's not it's it's a little bit more understandable that they would be doing almost anything to destroy public property to say we aren't going to go along. We want basic rights. We have some of those basic rights. Now, I think I think the other thing, though, even in our country is I understand. Um, I mean, I don't think I think when someone 
you know, spray paints a, a bus stop with a slogan. Um, it's not their bus stop. They really shouldn't be spray painting it. I don't view that as a vicious, evil crime. I do view looting and property destruction in other ways as as a pretty serious crime. And um, but again, people have a tendency to do to, to follow the incentives. And the more we can create incentives that say, hey, we can change things. Here's how, <clears throat> which is what the Liberty Initiative Fund LibertyIFund.org is all about, helping people do initiatives, change the world one measure at a time. Um, but as long as there is that chance, um, I think you're, you're going to see more and more people take it. And I think that oftentimes in our country, when there is bad behavior happening, it's to get attention. And it's because there's not an agenda for change that is real. And I, I really think that's the biggest problem with the criminal justice system. I don't want to say that. Uh, the biggest problem with the criminal justice system, there's so many. But the, the biggest um, deterrent to fixing it has been not having solid agenda items and, and making it too much a conversation that the, the whole nation has to have so that everybody gets right in their head and the truth is, let's change the law, let's change the incentives, let's change the policies, and then the people who aren't right in the head and who do something wrong will, will take care of that. Very good. I think that probably is a podcast. This has been the second week of June 2020, and this has been This Week in Common Sense. People should go to thisiscommonsense.org. That's where you write five Absolutely. days a week. Absolutely. And the podcast is available on Apple and Google and Stitcher and other it's platforms. SoundCloud. Yeah. Well, it's on SoundCloud. Yes, very much on SoundCloud. That's and people. I don't know if people know this, but you can comment on exact portions of a, of a podcast on SoundCloud. You can go into the file and make a comment in an exact point where you want to comment on. Really, I didn't know. It, it, it's the reason I like SoundCloud. And just like that, you froze. <laughs> well, that was uh, Paul Jacob freezing uh, on Skype. It says it's reconnecting for a poor network connection, uh, which strikes me as a, a good time to get this done, I guess. Just wrap up the whole thing. This has been This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman, Workman with an I, I don't know, on social media. Thanks. Thanks.